welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Proper Mental Podcast. It's episode 59. And my guest this week is Michael Byrne. Michael is the founder of LETS, which stands for Lived Experience Trauma Support. And through them, he offers mental health training and support uh, delivered in workplaces and businesses. He's one of the UK's leading mental health speakers, and he's also a published author. And I don't want to big this episode up too much, but I think it might be my favorite one so far. It was a lot of fun to do. But the stuff that came out of it was really, really powerful. And I'm really excited for people to finally hear it. I've been sitting on it for a little while. But basically, I found out about Michael after I heard him doing an interview for the BBC. And part of that interview, Michael was telling telling some of the stories from his life. And Michael's life has to be heard to be believed. It really is a work of fiction almost. And I was listening to that part of this interview and I was thinking, wow, this is an incredible story. He sounds like an incredible man. And then halfway through that interview, it changes from his life story to his mental health story. And then suddenly it was much more familiar. And you'll hear all about it in this episode, so I'm not going to bang on about it now. But basically, Michael experienced a mental health breakdown that took him to the point of suicide. And what really hit home for me is that when all this was going on for Michael, it was also going on for me in a very, very similar time frame with a lot of very similar things going on for us around that time. Um, we're both dads. Our sons were born a few months apart. They'd be in the same school year, I think. And a lot of the dates he was mentioning just tied in to dates where I was going through stuff. And it really struck me how you can have two people come from two completely different journeys you know Michael's story is just this just this incredible thing whereas my story was relatively boring and we both ended up in exactly the same place at almost the same time and I thought it would make a wonderful conversation for the podcast because sometimes our stories and our reasons why things happen get in the way of us talking about it and it's something that me and Michael talk about in this episode you know he didn't tell people about his story because he thought people wouldn't believe him and he thought his story would belittle the stories of others whereas I didn't tell my story because I thought it was too mundane I thought there was people out there who needed help more than me who were sicker than me and I think it just goes to show how complex the mental health conversation can be and that there's no hierarchy in mental health so yeah, I reached out to Michael and yet yeah, we sat down for a chat. Um, it was towards Christmas time and um, we just got on like a house on fire. You know, we had a lot in common as well as kind of um, mental health stuff and a, and a passion for helping others. We had music in common and the dad stuff in common and it felt like I was just chatting to an old friend. It was really, really lovely. And we just kind of get lost in the conversation. And, you know, he's got this incredible business, uh, lived experience, trauma support, and we didn't chat about them a great deal. He's got two really interesting books out as well, and we didn't really chat about them in any um, in any great detail. We just kind of got into this conversation about mental health and more specifically men's mental health and why we don't talk about things and all the different factors that play into that. 
and I really enjoyed and I felt like I got a lot out of it and I really think people listening are going to get a lot out of it too. Michael is just the, the loveliest man and I dare say he'll be back on the podcast at some point in the future. I hope he is um, because there's so much that we didn't get round to and I think, um, yeah, I think there's definitely more conversation to be had um, and I'd just, yeah, I'd like to spend a bit more time with him if I'm being honest. So if you'd like to know a bit more about Michael and his work with Let's, you can go to www.livedexperiencetraumasupport.com and there's links there for all the other things he does. There's links for his books. I'll also put the Amazon links in the episode notes as well. I'm going to put a link for the BBC interview where I first heard about Michael because we don't dwell too much on the details of his story in this episode. I don't think there's any need. You know, I don't think we need to get caught up in the in the more traumatic aspect of things. If you are looking to find out a bit more about his background, then he does talk about that at length on that BBC show. So I'll put the links there as well. As ever, if you want to get hold of me, at Proper Mental Podcast on all social media, propermentalpodcast.com. If you're looking for the website, you can email me via there. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash propermental. If you would like to chuck me a couple of quid to support the podcast financially, that would be very kind of you. And the best thing you can do to support this podcast is to rate and review in all the usual places. If you could do that for me as well, it'd be very much appreciated. So here we go. Let's get into it. This is episode 59 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Michael Byrne. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. I'm good, thank you, mate. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm very well. My, oh. uh, as I say, this my wife just sent me a couple of photographs. It's... Uh, it's my son's school lunch today. He's five years old, so he's just started primary school. Um, so it's making me smile that I get to see a photograph of him having his uh, primary one Christmas lunch. So oh, he's all, mate. He's all thinking <laughs> about it this morning. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's, um, I don't know, it just adds such a different element to this time of year, doesn't it, when there's little ones in the, in the house? I mean, I was going to say, I'm a, I'm a late father, as they say. I'm the oldest father at the playground gates. You know, I'm, I'm 52 and my son's five. So um, all of this is brand new to me. Um, you know, being at the, uh, you know, my son going into primary one. And so it's brilliant. I had a, the obligatory Christmas jumper on this morning and the kind of reindeer um, bands and all of that sort of stuff. So, and he was all excited about getting steak pie for his lunch. So... <laughs> Oh, mate. Eat steak pie in my own house if I, if I, you know, if I bribed them in some way, but he goes to school and gets steak pie, and the world was a beautiful place for him. So, it's oh, fun. that's it. Yeah, he probably asked for seconds. Uh, I know, I know. Yeah, it's my my son is um is five as well, so we've got a lot of um yeah, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, Michael. Actually, is because there's there's obviously elements of our own stories, our own lived experiences that are couldn't be more different <laughs> but um it gets to a certain point and it really ties in and we were going through a lot of similar things for different reasons but at very similar times and um yeah it's i find that i found that really really fascinating when i heard heard your story so yeah my son's like the same age i think my son was born in in may of this this the same year as your little man so uh yeah it's, it's i mean I, I you know i think uh, i always kind of say on a on a serious note that 
you know, <clears throat> when when my wife was pregnant, I always kind of say she had the perfect pregnancy, but that's only because, you know, my son was born at the end of it. I had lost twins um, in my 30s in another relationship, which was devastating, as it is for anyone. Um, so I always say it was perfect pregnancy. But what I also say is that as a man, um, no one really ever takes the, the man aside or the bloke aside before it and says, by the way, this is going to be tough. You know, this is going to be hard. There's going to be times when you're, patience and everything that you've ever known is going to be tested to the limit um, and you've never had to deal with this before. You're going to have to find some coping mechanisms that perhaps you've never had to use because you've, you know, you've been in a professional field or you've never been a parent before. But no one really has that conversation with you and then you enter into parenthood and it's, it's hard, it's tough, you know, and you can't communicate, you don't know what the answers are. And I remember without wishing my, my life away far from it, always wanting to get to that age where we could almost be pals. We could almost just be like buddies. You know, I know father and son and all that sort of stuff, but we could just sit and talk about the strangest things. And that's what it is, what it is in my life just now. And I love it, you know, that we do this help in the shelf thing, probably as a lot of people are doing just now. Uh, and my son always creeps into bed, our bed uh, during the night. My wife is always like kind of, okay, and I'm always like, come on in, come on, let's have a wee cuddle in. Uh, because he's not always going to want to do that. And when he wakes up every morning, usually wakes up where maybe I'm tickling his ear or he's tickling my ear or he's doing something to wake me up. And then it's like, Dad, what do you think the elf's done? <laughs> and I'm like, let's go and find out. you know. But I, I love it. Um, but don't get me wrong, as I said, there's, it's tough as well being a dad, you know, and particularly I think when you've had uh, a traumatic upbringing yourself, you know, I don't think sometimes it's easy because it's been tough. I think sometimes it can be hard, you know, because when kids can be tough on you, you know, and they can say the most unpleasant things because they absolutely live in the moment. And they don't know how to kind of um, be nice about being bad, if there is such a thing, if you know what I mean. But they can say some pretty cruel things to you that, as an adult, you should just brush them off. But as an adult who's had a traumatic upbringing and been told by their parents, you know, you're no loved, nobody wanted you. And sometimes kids can say that to you. And I know that most adults just brush it off, but sometimes it can be pretty searing into you, you know, and you you need to really just recompose yourself again and, and go back into it, as they say. But but aye, it's a it's a beautiful mixture of of everything, you know. So anyway, I probably overspoken. So <laughs> not not at all. No, I mean I should probably introduce you to be honest, because it feels like we're all we're already uh, we're all ready and rolling. But yeah, so my guest this week on the Proper Mental Podcast is Michael Byrne. So how are you today, mate? I'm brilliant. Um, I'm I'm in a great place just now, uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to join you today, Tom. And thank you very much for that invitation. I appreciate it. Oh, mate, it's uh, no, the pleasure is all mine. I really, really appreciate your time. I Like I kind of mentioned, um, like alluded to then, there's elements of um, our story that kind of really, really overlaps. And when I heard your story for the first time, the, I, the first part of it, um, I was, you know, quite like, wow, there's a lot going on here, right? And then the second part of it was you could have been talking about me, like even some of the dates match, you know, like it is absolutely surreal. But something I like to say about mental health and people when they're struggling with their mental health is that we, we all break in different ways. But often some of the stuff that or a lot of the stuff that comes out is kind of the same, right? And I really was keen to have this conversation to kind of 
to show that really, you know, to sort of, uh, yeah, to sort of, so people listening can kind of, um, yeah, just get behind the, the idea that, you know, they're not alone in, in feeling the, uh, in the way that they're feeling. And it's certainly not, um, there's no scale to mental health, right? There's no, it, it is what it is. And if you're, you're suffering, you're suffering. Absolutely. I kind of, I always just break it down. Uh, I mean, break it down. I don't mean that literally, but I could never talk about what was going on in my mind. And it, and it, it stems from a very early age when you're, you're abused as a child and then you start school and the very instinct in you tells you, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone that's going on because something worse will happen to you. You know, you may end up with social services. I mean, I'm, I was born in the 60s. So back in the 70s, it, social work would take you away and you'd never see your parents again and stuff like that. So that was always the, any, the, the determining fear in me was never to talk about it because something worse was going to happen. And then you go through some of these catastrophic events and you think to yourself, but nothing worse than this can happen. But you still have that voice in your head saying, you can't tell anyone about it because nobody's going to be able to relate to you. Everyone's going to send for the guys in the white jackets to come and get you. And I'm not being flippant. I'm just, that, that's, that was my upbringing. Um, so don't tell anyone. Uh, and the fear that overrode me was that I would be institutionalized. I would, I would be seen as someone who was just so far gone and off the scale. Uh, and I mean that my own, that's my own words, uh, that there'd be no hope for me. I'd be institutionalized. So, you know, I clung on to that ledge for as long as I could. And it, and it really, and I always say it was the precipice. I was on that precipice of suicide and breakdown and whatever, everything else was going on for so long. It was just a way of life for me. Um, but I always kind of break it down and say that, but anyone who listens, we all have a voice in our head, right? We all have voices. Nobody ever wants to say, I hear voices in my head, because that's all like a way back, you know, in the Yorkshire Ripper and all of these guys were saying, oh, the voice in the head that told me to do it. So that meant that any reasonable person could never say, oh, by the way, I've got a voice in my head as well, but we all do. But it's the voice in our head that says, right, go up out your bed, right? You need to take the kid to school or I wonder what's happening in Coronation Street tonight, or, you know, I hope my team win, whatever it is, because we all hear that voice. The difficulty is, is that when you're really struggling with your mental health, and I was, when I was really struggling with my mental health, that voice became all-consuming, and it was all-consuming of negativity. It was just about saying, you're worthless, nobody likes you, nobody loves you, why are you here? You're a failure, you'll never be a success, the world would be better without you, and, and that, I'm paraphrasing, but you hear that relentlessly, it becomes second nature. You hear it, you believe it. But when I got into recovery, what I began to understand that actually that voice in my mind, if it was a human being, if it was you, Tom, or, or you know, any of my mates or whatever, who continually says to me, by the way, Michael, you'll ne it'll never work. You'll never be successful. Nobody loves you. You're a failure. Nobody wanted you. All of that sort of stuff. You'd have a conversation with that human being and say, Listen, I love you to bits. You're my mate, you're my whatever, but I really need you to support me. Can you just support me? Because things are a bit tough just now and I really value your support. And we would have that conversation with the person. Now, you, you would either do that or you'd alienate them. But because it's the voice in our mind, we never have that conversation with our own mind because we think we're powerless. And I know that's going a bit off the chart, but because we hear the voice, we think it's the only option we have and we think that that rules everything. And it was only when I got into recovery that I began to take control 
of that voice in my mind and various various things that I, I learned in coping mechanisms um, to the point that I can manage it. You don't stop hearing that voice in your mind because it is still the driving force in your mind that says, right, make spaghetti bolognese tonight or whatever it may be, or your team are still garbage or whatever. But it's about when it talks to you in that way of that it always will do, it will still take a pot shot at you of me actually the person saying, ah, look, you might, you might be right there about that part, but I actually know how to deal with it now. And I don't necessarily have to believe that voice, use that voice. I've got better coping mechanisms in it. Um, so, yeah, and I think that if we can all recognise that illness comes in different forms, there's no shame in it whatsoever, that all of us generally will go through something in our lives, some more than others, but it's not a scale. And sometimes it only takes one thing to really make uh, a difference, and the real difference in, in negative mental health. Um, and it's not competition either, because some people will say, oh, you've been through a lot, I've only been through this, and I, and I think this and you think that. Um, but it's not like that. Um, for me, I wish I had dealt a lot better with the things, the trauma and the poor mental health that I suffered at an early age, rather than just perpetuating the same mistake that, uh, that I was bound to make over and over again, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, for me, um, you know, I went for a long time without asking for help. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, like a lot of it was because of that, because I was like, oh, there's people out there with real problems, you know, like, <laughs> well, and then if I was in a really bad patch and I was like, I need help, I need to speak to someone. And then I'd like Google the Samaritans number. And then I'd think like, well, what if someone who's worse than me and I'm taking up a spot, you know, what if I'm hogging the line and there's someone that's more of an emergency and then I wouldn't phone and, you know, and these things you mentioned being on like the prefaces there, the prefaces there is, and we can stay there for so long, can't we? And then things get kind of good again and you kind of think, Oh, I've got away with it. (laughs) It's that, it's that guilt, but it it all goes back to that voice in your mind. And and the most overriding voice is telling you is, Nobody will believe you. Don't talk about it, blah, 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 all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I just think that, you know, that voice, it's just, it's, it doesn't do us any favours. That, that's the way I look at it. it absolutely. It, your brain isn't your pal. It isn't your mate. When you're struggling with your mental health, your, your brain isn't your mate. And for me, the overriding thing for me was that I couldn't talk to anyone about it because I never thought that anyone would be able to relate to what I'd been through so and I don't mean that in a negative way but I never wanted to go and speak to an academic about you know my father was murdered when I was in my 20s and then a whole lot of stuff happened but then if you just take the clutter disaster where a helicopter crashed to the roof who how am I ever going to speak to anyone who's been through something similar right that just, just because those two things are pretty off the walls they are so I I only really wanted to talk to someone who'd been through something similar because then we have a share of emotions and feelings and experiences. But if I was to go to a psychologist or a counsellor, um, how were they going to tell me how to deal with something that they'd never been through? And, and that was my thoughts. I'm not saying that, that they can't. I'm just saying that was my overriding factor was you can't go and talk to a counsellor about all of that stuff because how are they going to tell you how to deal with it if they've never dealt with it themselves personally? Um, and and that was my real, I, I, I was never going to talk to anyone about it because when I, I started my breakdown in April 17, but I started to go to support groups in, eight, in 2018 and Tom, I, I, would, I would join a support group and it would be people talking about uh, exam anxiety and, and stuff like that. 
and it would be my turn and I'd be sitting thinking, I'm going to open up here and talk about murders and loss of children and abuse and helicopter crashes. And when I've done that, it's almost as if everyone around you starts shifting their seat further away from you, you know, and a few times people would say, I don't want to sit next to you, you're the unluckiest guy in the world. (laughs) I look at it in a different way and think that actually I see myself as the luckiest guy in the world just because I'm still here. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just a wonderful, a wonderful way to, um, to look at it. Yeah. Because it's something that I noticed when I was kind of doing a bit of research on this, that um, every time one of these quite massive uh, life events happened, your kind of response to it was to go back to work, right? That you were very, very good at kind of just, just cracking on. And was that the stuff that was kind of then building up for years and years and years? Is that kind of how you got towards that breakdown? You're, you're, you're right, Tom. I, I, when I do talks and all that, I talk about that. I put my suit, my shirt, my tie on, and I would go into work. So my father was murdered on a Thursday evening. I went to work on a Friday morning. I lost twins on a Sunday. And I went to work on a Monday. The closer was a Friday night, and I went to work on a Monday morning. And everyone thinks, oh, you're so resilient. You must have great coping mechanisms and all of that. Actually, I see those things as some of the biggest regrets I ever had. Um, Only now I see it like that. I didn't then because it was really the only coping mechanism I had. And it goes back to that learned experience that I I was brought into as a a three-year-old starting school at five, where you would turn up for, for school every single day and never talk about what was going on at home. So for me, you know, uh, when, when I was 25, 26, my father was murdered, I had no alternative the next morning except to go to work because it was all I knew as a way of coping. So all that abuse and everything that happened, what do you do? You still turn up for school, you still turn up for work. And, and I just replicated that. I wish, I, I wish I'd never done that. And I speak to a lot of companies about, I said, that's not resilience. That's like, you know, Einstein saying you repeat the same thing and expect a different result. It, it's madness. But it was ignorance on my part. Um, and I always say that that isn't real resilience. Real resilience to me now, knowing everything that I know and reflecting on my own life, would have been if I had sought help for where I was at that point in time to help me deal with everything that was going on, to allow me to go to work and to allow me to deal with everything in my private life. But I didn't know how to do that. So all of that turning up for work was, was really just a, a deflection or an ignorance in actually how to deal with the problems that was going on in my life. Um, and maybe it's, a, maybe it's a man thing, and I mean that respectfully to all men uh, and, and women as well. But certainly in, in Scotland, in, in the west of Scotland, in Glasgow, where I come from, the, the mentality is very much, you don't, don't talk about your mental health, you don't talk about anything like that. You man up all of those sort of stereotypes, you turn up for work, you do your job, and that's it. Um, but... As, as most people will know that if you continue to bury things, if you continue not to deal with them, they will manifest in a different way because you have to cope with them somehow. And for me, you know, professionally, my career was brilliant. It was really taken off. And the worse my private life was, the better my career was. But the worse my private life was, the better my career was. But actually, I was scorching everything around me, you know, by how I was coping with everything badly and I think it's kind of well documented that I would use alcohol as a, as a coping mechanism. I would go missing, sabotage relationships. So all of that stuff was completely in tatters of my own doing because all that mattered to me was that if I turned up for work, looking the part, everything would be okay because I could keep that pretense going. 
as absurd as that sounds, but that, that's exactly where I was, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to relate to that, you know, because, I mean, the statistics tell us, don't they, about like men talking about their mental health. We all know about those about those statistics and the particular age group. But I, I think a lot of it as well is when you're not sure what's happening, like how do you even know what to say? You know, like we don't know who to talk to. We don't know if they're going to listen. We don't know what to say. Like even if you decided I want to talk, we don't really know what to do, right? We don't even know how. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I remember when my when my father was murdered, um, so I, I I was born in an area in Glasgow called the Gorbals, and way back in the sixties, it was really bad reputation. A lot of razor gangs, and there's a famous book called No Mean City, uh, and it's based on the Gorbals in the thirties and all that. But it's a real area of high multiple deprivation, as are a lot of places in Glasgow. Um, so I was brought up there, and uh, then moved to Casmock, which is a big big council housing scheme way back then. Uh, and the mentality was, you never spoke about anything. Drink was the main driver for everything. So when you start to then think, I can't talk about this, who do I talk to about it? You, you know, you don't have access to the Samaritans, really. Uh, we, I didn't, uh, or anything like that. Then what do you do? And when you go with your pals, you don't want to be a bloke with the greatest of respect sitting there doom and gloom because your pals are going to disown you after a while because they'll think that. So you keep the facade up. And the facade for me, Tom, was always, Michael always looks dead happy, cheery, confident, smiley, and all of that sort of stuff. And I was because I knew that's what I was comfortable doing. And it was just a picture for everyone else. But inside, I was terrified that anyone would find out the real me. I was terrified of really letting the mask slip because I wasn't confident. I, I, I was terrified of having any conversation. I had low self-esteem. I would think, why would anyone want to talk to me anyway? I, you know, I'm, I'm boring. I'm all that stuff. This is all just a facade. I'll stand and smile and the world will think I'm okay. And it's, it, I got away with that for 30 odd years, Tom, because um, it's really easy to get away with it because people judge on what they see. And if you look okay, people will generally think you're okay. Because as you said there, if you were to answer back, Actually, I'm not okay. Most people would think, I don't know what to do. How, how do I really answer that? Um, and that's, you know, I spent the last couple of years helping a lot of people deal with, you know, have those conversations and stuff. But I always thought when, when my father was murdered in the Gorbals, I instantly felt guilty for anyone who met me. Because I knew that when they met me, they were thinking, my God, I don't know what to say to this guy. His dad was murdered and... Oh, I wish I'd turned a different corner and no met him. And I felt that guilt. I felt that all those emotions of them meeting me and that shame for them meeting me, you know. So I couldn't make eye contact. I, I wouldn't want to have a conversation because I honestly thought even anyone who met me would be thinking, I wish I'd never met this guy because I don't know what to say to him. And, and that's kind of like where we go when we're struggling with mental health because you want to talk, but you know that if you do talk, the person on the other side of it might then be the person who thinks, I wish I'd never asked who the person was, you know. But more and more people by the, the fantastic work that you're doing are opening up to say, actually, I'm no great. Or see, when I ask how you are, I really mean, how are you? And if you tell me you're not okay, I'm really interested to see how I can help you and what I can do to, you know, to make the conversation better for you. And I think more and more um, that's happening. But certainly when I was growing up, it certainly wasn't the way, you know. Yeah, sure. Did you know it while all this is going on? Did 
did terms like, um, you know, like mental health, mental illness, like were you aware that something was happening? You know, for like for myself, after a while, I just kind of thought that I was a bit weird. I, I never occurred to me that I was poorly. You know, I just used to, and that became another stick to beat myself with, right? So I was like, I can't ever let anyone find out that I'm this this weirdo who thinks these things about himself. And but I had no idea what, I had this stereotypical idea about mental health, about depression. It was stuff that I'd seen on EastEnders or badly represented, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the yeah. classic yeah. analogy, right? So many people I speak to use that, and that was one of mine. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not like that. You know, so did you did you know that you were actually like not well as this is going on? Well, I look at it exactly the same as you just described there. I always felt different, completely different from everyone else. But of course, what you're really judging is I felt different from the outward appearance of everyone else because you don't know what's going on in their mind. But I absolutely felt different. And I once heard a song from Oasis called Born on a Different Cloud. And I just thought. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like I'm born on a different cloud, not in any superior way, just that the whole world was born over here and I was born over there um, and I'm different from everyone else. Everyone looks happy. Everyone looks like they don't have a care in the world. And I know that's just a judgment that I spoke around, um, but I'm, I'm, going, I'm struggling with everything and are inwardly struggling, but everyone's not. And, and, and I just kind of thought, I'm born on the different cloud. I'm different from everyone else, but I'll try and fit in as best I can with this facade, with this suit, shirt and tie and, and trying to do all of that. Um, and it was just, you know, 40 odd years of trying to fit into a place that I never felt that I that I was part of because I, whilst I might not think I have thought I was really struggling with my mental health, right until the very end is when I knew I was, uh, because I, I was off the scale in my own mind, but I knew I was really unwell then. But during all of that, I just thought I was different. I just thought I seen things differently from people, for people, from people. And that was kind of reinforced by others as well. You know, you're a wee bit different. Or, I, you know, I seen more detail in things that other people didn't or I paid particular attention. And people would just say, oh, you're really good at that. And I would think, oh, aye, that's because I've got a different way of seeing things. And, you know, it's a, a little bit like perhaps autism in a certain way where fantastic skills and, and, and all of that and it's and where they still can see a, a picture which is magnificent but a lot of other people don't see that picture but because you see a different picture you're almost branded in some way and I knew that I was seeing different pictures uh, in my mind from everyone else so so yeah I always just thought that I was born under a different cloud and my cloud was a very very dark cloud if you like you know yeah yeah no i get that i get that totally yeah there's going to be a lot of um smiling and nodding during this, this <laughs> every time i hear that song when I'm at, I, I like to go to the gym just to keep my mind calm and stuff like that and every time that comes on i'm laughing and I, i'm always sure that everyone around me is going guys got headphones and must be listening to a really good podcast or a funny podcast and i'm just listening to the irony of born on a different cloud you know yeah uh, but yeah that i think that we all in some, not all, I mean, I think when you're struggling with your mental health, you're, you know, you've got a lot of faces for different people and you're trying to hold it all together. And that in itself is exhausting because you're, if you're in a relationship, you're trying to keep that together because you think if you open up and, and, and the real you, if we want to call it that, comes out, that relationship might end or you don't want to tell your employer because your employment might end. And then, you know, it's really difficult. I used to always say, um, I'm going to use a Glasgow phrase and I'll explain it to you uh, and for everyone else. But I, after every traumatic event, right, 
I had this imaginary kind of like dungeon that was in my brain, okay? And after every event, I would throw the monster from that event, if you like, into the dungeon, and a steel roller shutter would come down and slam shut. And once that shutter was closed, I would never talk about it ever again. So, you know, my father's murder, the abuse, all of that. So in my mind, I had a circular dungeon almost of steel shutters and everything was confined behind it. And as long as that was, they were all confined, I would be okay, right? No any better than okay, but I could handle it. But slowly but surely, as my, my mental health deteriorated, these shutters started to creep up. And it wouldn't just be one shutter, it would be two and three, and all of these monsters would come out. And what we say in Glasgow is they would want a square go, right? A square go in Glasgow is a fight, right? And I'd have all these monsters wanting a, a square go with me, and I'd be fighting with them all day in the hope that I could get to sleep. And then if I did get to sleep, I'd wake up in the morning and they would all be sitting waiting for me again in my mind. Now, when you explain that to people who've never struggled with their mental health, they absolutely go, you are off your head. You are crazy because you're talking about monsters in your head. But people understand that when they've struggled with stuff because we might describe it in a different way of monsters in a, in a, you know, behind a shutter. But we try and compartmentalize it, hide it and never show it. Um, sometimes it just comes out. Yeah. And like modern society, it makes that so easy, that process. You know, like it, it's built to, one, to make it very, very easy for us to blend in. And two, very, very easy for us to distract ourselves from those monsters. So you can buy yourself time by, you know, whether it's, you know, booze or drugs or junk food or television or whatever these things are. We can just keep them at bay for so long, can't we? It's, it's easily done in modern society, unfortunately. And all those things that you said, they're just a distraction. They're, they're not a cure um, or anything like that. They just distract you from actually having to deal with what's going on. And sometimes they're not all positive distractions, you know, going on Twitter or whatever the world is, is happening in the world and seeing some of the things that are going on can only just heighten some of the struggles that you're having. So a positive distraction is good. You know, for me, I like to go to the gym um, in the morning after I drop the wee guy at school and stuff like that, if I can. That's a positive distraction for me. But equally, I know that if I stick, you know, uh, the news on at 10 p.m. at night, you know, by 10, 15, I'm, I'm, I'm shouting at the TV. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, it's not positive for me anymore because of what's going on. So, but once you're aware of what those negative distractions are, you can take steps to avoid them, you know, if, if you want to, because sometimes you don't want to. You, you, mental health, sometimes, you know, as I said, your, your brain isn't your friend and sometimes you will quite openly go into sabotaging exactly what's going on around you, you know, and I, I know that as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. So like after all those like events that you kind of chatted about there, when did the monsters start to start to win that that fight mate like how did it get to that that point that's a really good question so i kind of you know i do a lot of talks around the whole stuff that i've been through uh and i you know put a bit of satire in it because you can't like like us all we can't just keep talking trauma 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 we're all human beings and it, sometimes it's up sometimes it's down but for me my breakdown began on april fool's day 2017 right and I always say, you know when the world is messing about with you, when it begins in April Fool's Day, um, in an Asda car park, right? An Asda supermarket car park. And it was a Saturday, 1st of April, 17. And I was driving into this Asda car park. And there was a pedestrian crossing. And this young boy and his dad were crossing the pedestrian crossing. And I was, I was, my car was parked. I was sitting in idle. 
And I was just watching this, you know, uh, father and son or whomever uh, crossing. And all of a sudden, this car just ran into the side of me, smashed through a giveaway and just rammed into me. And it's like, you know, I'd never seen it coming. I'd say though, I'd never seen it coming. It was an elderly chap, got out of the car. He was in bits anyway, you know, I was non-confrontational. We just exchanged details. The guy said he didn't need to see the giveaway and lost control. Everything was fine. I went and I parked my car up and I went in and got my shopping. <laughs> it's just absurd. But I felt something was wrong right away, physically, at that point in time. Um, and I was very dizzy and stuff like that. So I went home. And on the Monday, I put my suit, shirt and tie on and went to work, obviously. And by the Thursday... I was in hospital with a suspected stroke as a result of the car crash. Now, that for me was the, the beginning of the, of, of the end of that stage of my life and probably the, the, the beginning of the next phase of my life. But that's really when my breakdown began, um, that hospitalization, because it reinforced everything I just spoke about a couple of minutes ago about being institutionalized. I was terrified of being in hospital. So that first day I got rushed to hospital and I only went to hospital because my wife asked me to go to the GP because every time I stood up, I kept falling over. I'd, I'd lost all my balance. It, it was just the result of the crash and so on. I just, but I didn't want to go to my GP and I kept saying I'm falling over because I've got vertigo. <laughs> but I was looking for any excuse not to go to my GP because, you know, as I often say, you never really get good news for your GP. So why do you voluntarily want to go to your GP for the first time? So... Anyway, I went in and he got me blue lighted to a hospital in Glasgow. So there I was sitting and lying in a hospital bed in an emergency admission. And all I could think of was they're going to see how mentally unwell I am. They're going to do scans on my brain. And I know the difference between physical and mental health, you know, but I'm just, this is where I was, that they're going to do an MRI scan or a CAT scan or whatever in my brain. And they're going to be able to see that I am mentally unwell and I'm never getting out of here, right? That was my absolute fear. At that point in time, I couldn't even phone my boss and say I'm in hospital because I was worried about career suicide and all of that. I had a few managers that worked for me, so I ended up texting one of the managers saying, going to tell the chief exec, uh, I'm in hospital, but I'll be back at work as soon as possible. I'll be out this afternoon. I was just terrified of, of you know, that whole thing. And... I wouldn't let my wife come up to the hospital and visit me. I wouldn't let anyone come up to the hospital and visit me because I already knew at that point that the facade was gone, that I was struggling. But I was trying to hold it on with the, uh, hold it together for the staff. And I would say to them, look, there's nothing wrong. I'm not having a stroke. I need to get home. And ashamedly, I'm absolutely ashamed of this, but it's where I was in all honesty. My son was eight months old at that point in time. And all I could keep saying at the hospital was, you need to let me out because I've got to get back to my work. Oh, and I've got an eight-month-old son. Now, I'm ashamed of that. But what I was trying to do there was that I knew that if I was at work, I could pretend everything was okay and the family part was secondary. Um, that's, so that was all that was important to me, getting back to work to pretend. Um, they kept me in overnight. Like I said, I wouldn't let anyone come see me. And by the next day, um, Tom, I'd been such a pain in the backside to the staff, ashamedly that I begged them to let me out, and they did. It was a Friday afternoon. Uh, and on a Monday, uh, they let me out, gave me blood thinning tablets, said to come back the following week to get the CAT scan and MRI scan, not to drive, not to go to work, complete recuperation, 
and on a Monday morning I went to work and that's when it, that's when my breakdown I knew my breakdown was in full swing by this point um, I knew that I needed help I absolutely knew that I needed help and but the biggest thing is I didn't know how nor who to ask for help so I didn't know how to deal with it and what I always say then at that point was I I couldn't ask my employer for help. I absolutely couldn't. And I couldn't ask my wife for help because we had an eight-month-old son. So, I, you know, I didn't want to burden my wife further by that. Uh, none of my mates would have understood, or I believe none of my mates would have understood. So what actually happened for me, Tom, was that my whole personality changed. It, it Kind of what I said maybe earlier on that, it manifested in a completely different way where my personality changed. I went from being this diligent professional, 30-year career of meeting targets and turning up for work every day to being someone who absolutely just decided to ruin everything around me, sabotage everything, missed, deliberately missed deadlines, um, verbally abused staff, would self-report myself to my chief exec and say, here's what I've just done. I've just, you know, verbally abused my staff. All in the hope that the chief exec would say, can I help you? And I continued on like that for six months. I was allowed to behave like that for six months. Um, and I was just off the scale by this point. And then in January 18, uh, I got taken into my chief executive's office. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is the hell. And he suspended me for my conduct. And that was the last day I ever worked um, for that employer. And the first phone call I made was to the Samaritans because I knew at that point that coping mechanisms, you know, for 43 years or whatever it was, was no longer there. I couldn't go to work anymore. So what was I going to do? And I tried to phone the Samaritans. But I can always say when I was talking earlier on about talking to people who've been through it, I call that the language of trauma. I think when you've been through something, you get that, you understand that language. You may not have been through the same thing, but you know what the feelings are. Um, and I was talking to someone at the end who... Who, who, who I thought didn't really get where, where I was coming from, you know, and that's not their fault, it's me that thought that. And then I knew that at that moment in time, the best option for me was to end my life. So I clung on to it. I went to my GP the next morning and he gave me antidepressants because, <laughs> of course, that's the answer, you know. And, um, uh, and he gave me the presents and told me to come back in a month's time or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, and he gave me, he referred me to a centre in Glasgow called the Glasgow Psychological Trauma Centre. It's the gold star centre of trauma in Glasgow. There were a lot of Clutha survivors, but there was going to be a five-month waiting list to get seen. So for those five months, I was in a really, really dark and dangerous place. Um, so it was difficult difficult for my wife and my son and everyone around me uh, trying to deal with me and uh, I, I was really really unwell and I had I had no support in terms of there's no groups in Glasgow for PTSD and there's no groups in Glasgow for complex PTSD I didn't know that that's what I was going to be subsequently diagnosed with there was just kind of like chat groups and stuff like that so I tried to go along to them and it's kind of as I said earlier on when you sit down and try to open up about some of my stuff and people are just talking about, I'm really worrying about my exam next week. And I know that's a massive thing for them because it is a massive event. I've been through it. But I then start to feel guilty because I think I'm just transferring my trauma onto that person because they're only thinking about this exam and we some proper help, support. They'll get through that. 
me burdening them by opening up and talking about, you know, murders and helicopter crashes is going to make them terrified of the world outside. So you then start to feel that guilt of, I can't go there because I'm only doing more damage than good to other people. So I continued on like that. And really for me, by April 18, I had made the decision to end my life. And that's really where it, it took me. And the interesting thing, Tom, and you maybe heard this before, it's pretty common, is that when I made that decision to end my life, I was happier at that point then than I'd ever been. Outside my son being born, you know, real family stuff. I was happier then than I'd ever been in my life in terms of my own mental health because I knew that the end was in sight and I was happy about that. Um, and that that's not to trigger anyone to be more, but that's just a, a reality of where I was. And and I realised at that point, once I'd made my plan, once I knew what was happening, once the date was all sorted, I was elated, I was happy. Um, and that's, I do a lot of, you know, when I do talks, I, you know, and advice for people to say, to look out for that sudden switch in personality because it can be a, a red flag as well. But I, I was elated. I was cutting my outside gas in my garden, like, you know, trying to make a look like Wimbledon, um, you know, and doing all of these things that really weren't in my nature because I hate cutting the grass. But I was really just preparing for life for me not being here. Um, so that that's kind of really where it took me from April through April 17, right through to April 18. Uh, was really probably the most difficult 12 months uh, for me. Um, and, I, and I'm sure it was difficult for a lot of people around me as well. There's no doubt about that. I, I don't know how my wife coped with that. And, and the one thing I always say is that as much as there's very little support for people struggling with their mental health, there's even less support for family members who are struggling with people who are struggling with their mental health, you know? Um, there's, there's definitely not a lot of support for family members or friends who are assisting people struggling with their mental health, you know? Oh, mate, I, I think that is such an important point to make. You know, still one of my highest downloaded episodes is one that I did with my wife. And we, we went through my story, but from her point of view. And the amount of, no other episode has had the amount of like messages and emails. Um, and it's all partners who are getting in touch with Kim, my wife, to say like, you know, wow, we needed to hear that. That's happened to me too. You know, there's just a real, there's a real missing part of the conversation, I think, for the people that are affected outside of the, the mental illness. Absolutely. I mean, mental illness, um, with the greatest of, greatest of respect to everyone, and I'm only, whenever I talk about anything, I'm talking about my own experience. I'm not branding anyone or anything like that. But it makes you incredibly selfish. It makes you incredibly selfish because you are only thinking about you and how you can get through the next 10 minutes, the next hour, the next day. And it's really hard to be part of family life, um, you know, with your wife and family, your sons, whomever, because really all you're thinking about is, I don't know if I can make the next 30 minutes. I don't know if I can make the next 60. So you're not present. You're not present at any time. You're just locked in, you know, this dungeon in your brain trying to fight the battles you're fighting. Or I was, that's how I see it. But, um, and it does... Uh, you know, a lot of damage to relationships. And, and I, I still say I have no idea how my wife is still with me and, you know, puts up with me or, or put up with me during all of that. Um, I, I don't know how she found the strength to do all of that, you know, and I, and I love it to bits and admire her for doing it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It may, you know, same in this house, same in this house. You know, I don't know. I became so selfish. And like you were saying about your behavior at work, that was my behavior at home. You know, yeah. I used to say the most shocking things because I thought, if I could be, and I didn't consciously think this, this was like my behavior, but I was like, if I say something so shocking, 
then she will, we've been together a long time. She's known me man and boy. She'll turn around and say, why are you saying this? Do you need help? You know, but it's like, it's, you can't cry for help if you've not told anyone that you're struggling, right? You can't expect help if you haven't, you can't, people can't guess, people can't, um, it just makes no sense now. But it, in that time, in that moment, it makes all the sense in the world. It's like the perfect solution. I always, I, you know, in the work that I do now, I always say like, you know, we always expect, you know, like if someone breaks the leg, you can see that they'll get a cast on and they'll get crutches, you know, and, and, and all of that. There are really visible signs. But when you're struggling with your mental health, you know, this stereotype that if you're struggling with your mental health, you'll have a disheveled shirt and tie, you'll be unkempt, sunshaved and all of that. That's, for me, that was the furthest thing because I always shaved, had a haircut, look, you know, looked the part because that was my facade. I was never going to let that slip. So what I always say is, look, see if you're looking straight on for changes, you're never going to find them because, you know, the person's clinging on, or I was certainly clinging on to reality. But actually, why don't you look over here and see what the differences are, perhaps in personality or eating habits or other things that you think, actually, never normally does that or never normally looks like that. And then just start adding those dots together and they will come up with something and then allow you to perhaps ask a question coming at it from a different way. Um, but no, I, I totally get what you say there, Tommy. And I've done a lot of things um, in my private life to my wife that, you know, I, I take full accountability for it. I don't blame Melness for it. I, I think even at that time, I was fully aware of everything I was doing and I don't blame uh, the trauma and all the events that I've been through for my behaviour. Uh, I take full responsibility and I take that responsibility, you know, to with me. But... Uh, coupled with that I should have went and got help. The difficult for me was probably the same as yourself. That, who, who, who do I go? I don't know where I go. There is there something that says, you know, if you've got all of these, contact Johnny or, you know, see Janie. It's like, um, and I think that's the that's the problem. But with more and more people like yourself and, and others too, just openly having conversations and having a laugh about it as well, you know, and, and not all doom and gloom and stuff like that. Because... As I said, see, when you're in it, you think you're never coming out of it. You think, I'm never getting out. I can't tell anyone. But actually, see, when you hear stories of other people having been through it um, and they're still a, a success in whatever way we deem success, whether it's just getting out of bed in the morning, putting a shirt on or, or whatever, because success isn't about zeros in your bank account or whatever. Um, and you see that people have managed to get to that point. Uh, it's, in, it's incredibly inspiring and and, I, and I, I think I remember saying to on that show, and I say it quite a lot, that I always still see myself as in recovery. And it's important for me to view myself in that respect. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, Tom, but there used to be an advert on TV for head and shoulders shampoo. And it would say, the girl or the boy, whatever it would be, would say, oh, I didn't know you had, I didn't know you had dandruff. And of course, they kind of missed the point, but you, you use it to prevent. Um, and I kind of was thinking about that, that, if I was to view myself as uh, not struggling with my mental health in any way, I think that my habits would change and they would, I, in some ways, I would revert back to habits and things that weren't beneficial for me. Um, so I like to view myself as someone who's in recovery, maintaining my recovery, doing the things that help it. I can still do some things that I know don't help it, but that's through choice then, you know. Um, I like to go to the gym, but equally at night, I like to have a bit of chocolate and I'm okay with that. Um, I know that if I'm going to have a couple of pints or I'm going to socialise or whatever, that's through choice. It's not through I'm trying to drown out the voices in my head and all of that sort of stuff. So 
it's more about being informed than me uh, and accepting those choices through my own self-awareness, but viewing it from I'm someone in recovery. And I, and, I, and I happily view myself in that way. I feel no stigma around that. That's for other people to judge. Um, but I don't think I will ever be um, 100% that I don't struggle with my mental health. I think it's a roller coaster. Some things were at the peak of it. Some things were not. Um, but, you know, by doing the things that I, I habitually like to do, I think that I can maintain my mental health far better than I used to do. And, and, and that's, that's okay for me. I'm okay with that. Yeah, you mentioned two things there that were incredibly powerful for me. And one was acceptance and just saying, right, this is me. And this is something that I've got to to work with now. And for so long, I I just tried to wrestle my mental health. You know, I was like, I can, I'm going to headlock it, drag it to the ground. I'm going to beat this. Yeah. And all it did was fight back harder, right? And so once I kind of accepted it, then I had something to work with, you know, then the fight wasn't quite so hard anymore. But then you also mentioned like self-awareness and that's the best tool you've got, because if you've got self-awareness, you can start to apply all the other tools that you've got. Right. And if I know if I have a little bit of a bad patch, if I'm being really honest with myself and I then go and look over the few days, weeks, whatever, leading up to that bad patch, I can see where it's come from. I can see, ah, well, you know, maybe you haven't been doing this and you haven't been doing that and a little bit too much of this and slowly over time it, it's added up. And that self-awareness, you can catch things at the start. It's this conversation about men talking, isn't it, Michael? Like we're all told, like if you're in trouble, talk, you're in trouble, talk. But everyone talks about like the crisis bit. Like we do stuff at the start and maybe we never get down that end, right? Prevention's better than cure. <laughs> but do you know what? It's interesting to say that, Tom, because see the day, the day I got diagnosed, uh, with complex PTSD. So I kind of took you to April 18. I, I, I uh, planned to end my life in May 18. Anyway, serendipitous events took over and, and you know, I'm not religious in any way, but I think there was a, a universal intervention or whatever, but serendipity, whatever you want to say, and it prevented me from ending my life that day. Um, and by the end of May, I got diagnosed with, uh, I got that appointment at the Glasgow Psychological Trauma Centre and over two days, it took them two days to assess me. Um, with all the things I've been through, they diagnosed me with complex PTSD. And I always, and I would say, over those two days, it's the first time I was completely open and honest about everything um, because I knew it was all or nothing for me by that point. And, but when I came out of that centre, they diagnosed me complex PTSD. Um, if you've ever seen Rocky II, where Stallone runs up the top of the stairs and the Philadelphia gets to the top and he does that, I came out like that. I came out like a man released because I thought, I don't care about anyone else now. I don't fear anyone's judgment. I, I now know that I've got complex PTSD and anyone who perhaps had been through something similar would have exactly the same to varying degrees or whatever. And if that's what it is, I'm going to do everything I can to overcome it or deal with it or manage it or whatever. And, and I'm buying into that. I'm buying into the whole thing. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. Um, excuse me. That's exactly what I did. And that changed everything for me because I accepted then that, okay, I've got complex PTSD. It's not the end of the world. I've obviously had it for a long time and not dealt with it properly. So now I'm buying a therapy that was offered to me. I turned up every single week. Uh, I went above and beyond. But I equally knew that I was high functioning as well that in my professional career. So I could use some of those elements of that to deal with the, the complex PTSD. And I bought research books and all of that sort of stuff. But the one thing I got rid of was the shame and the fear of judgment. And see, once I got rid of that, it changed everything for me because I no longer worried what 
you know, Jim in the street thought about me or Johnny thought about me or Janie. It didn't worry me what they thought about me. All that mattered to me was what I thought about me because what I thought about me would make the world of a difference because up to that point, I didn't want to be me. I wanted to end my life. So as long as I felt, could get to the point where I felt intrinsically happy with me, that would be okay. And that would be the starting point for everything else. Um, and it's interesting because I talk quite a few, I've spoken to quite a few people that one thing I never had was emotions. My emotions were nailed down, slammed shut behind those dungeons and all that sort of stuff. Nobody was ever getting emotions. And you get the usual, you're so cold-hearted and all that, you're stoned. Because all of it's just protection, you know. And then, you know, when I was in when I was in that stage of my recovery, I started to cry. I'd be watching movies or I'd watch TV adverts or I'd watch something and I'd, I'd start to cry. And for the first time in my life, I was absolutely okay with it. And I would let myself cry, right? And now I'm, I'm a 52-year-old man and I still cry. I could watch the TV and I could... It may not be anything that other people would find emotional and I'll find myself start crying. And rather than perhaps being that person that goes, oh, no, I'm not crying, I'll... I'll I actually just let myself be upset or be, you know, let the emotion come out. And the way I look at that is that, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm absolutely in touch with my emotions. And if I'm, if I'm meant to be upset at that point in time, that's exactly how I'm meant to feel. And if crying for a wee minute or two or just having a couple of tears coming down my cheek, that's how I'm meant to feel. Absolutely, I'm all for it. Um, and, and I'm not ashamed of any of that. I'm not, you know, maybe people who think, but it doesn't bother me in any way. And I think, just expressing ourselves like that and say, why would they be ashamed to cry? Um, you know, this time of year is an emotional time of year for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Um, and I, I love it. Um, but I love the fact that I'm actually in touch with my emotions, you know, over this past couple of years for probably the first time, you know, maybe since a two or three year old boy. Um, and I don't think it gets much better than that, you know. No, I mean, it's incredibly empowering, right? To like fully step into your own skin and say, this is this is me and this is what feels right at the moment and I'm going to go with it, you know? And it's, um, it's a wonderful thing. You know, I always used to, you know, I, I love my music. Okay, I love I love Paul Weller, the jams, everything Weller's done. I love the Who, the Beatles. Um, you know, my poetry book's called Poems from a Mod because I'm a mod. I love all that stuff. But it took me a long time to be able to express that and to be someone that wanted to dress the way that I wanted to dress because you conform or you, you know, you kind of fit in, as you said, really eloquently, Tom. So, and I always admired people that you'd see in the street, you know, girls that maybe have uh, pink hair or dressed a certain way, boys dressed a certain way. I always really admired that because I always thought, good on you. That must, you know, you're actually being who you want to be at that moment in time. I wish I could do that, you know not pink hair, but be me in the outside as well as the inside. And, 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 and to be able to find that and do that, it's just brilliant. And I did find that, um, and, you know, my mates call me Mick the Mod and all that sort of stuff because just being able to be me. But what I would say, be me faults and all, you know, being me, uh, like yourself, Tom, it's not because I'm talking about it and I feel okay that I'm, I'm never an angry person or I'm never a frustrated person or I'm never a horrible person. I'm human like everyone else. The difference is that I know I notice it now and I know the reason why as opposed to just, you know, blanking it all out, not caring that I might hurt someone. Um, to me, it matters a lot now, whereas in the past it didn't um, because it was just all about protecting me. Now, now it's more than that, you know. Yeah, I think it's a common um, misconception about mental illness is that the, the thoughts and the feelings and the stuff that arises is like separate to being a human being. 
But all the stuff is human stuff. It's just turned up to 11, isn't it? It's just on steroids, but they're not different emotions to anyone else is experiencing. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, so I had an overriding uh, fear of people's judgment and shame. And I remember watching um, a television drama series called The Bodyguard. Remember that it was out a few years ago, really, really popular BBC drama, I think it was. But anyway, the guy who was wanted, you know, hunt them all down, was diagnosed with PTSD. Right? And that was up in the show, you know, this guy's got PTSD. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be able to say I've got PTSD now because someone who's got PTSD is that guy. That's the caricature of someone who got, you know, that he's, he's a threat to life, he's going to shit people, blow people up and all of that sort of stuff. And when you generally say anything about PTSD, people think you're maybe ex-military and, and so on like that. Um, so you kind of then think, well, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about PTSD. But actually, anyone who's been through an event can have PTSD as a result of that event. You know, it's just, as you said, it's just heightened. And, you know, to this day, you know, when I hear a helicopter above, I still have a physiological response. You know, the hairs on my arm will still stand up. That's never going to change. But beforehand, you would, I would be ashamed of feeling that way. I would think there was something wrong with me because I feel that way. But when you actually realise that that's the way you're meant to feel because you've been through a traumatic event that's linked to a helicopter. So it's only natural that when you see or hear one, you're going to have it. Uh, you're going to have some kind of action. And if I get to the point where all I have now is that the hairs and that my arms will stand up, brilliant. I'm okay with that. and I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, and I would quite happily go in a helicopter. I'd quite happily do all those things. I've no fear of it. Um, but yeah, it's just... It's just dialed up. And I think the sooner that perhaps society sees that PTSD or, or, or other um, diagnosis of things like that, it's just events. It doesn't mean that you don't have feelings, you don't love, you don't have all the other feelings that every other human being does. It just means that sometimes you're struggling to deal with emotions for a certain point in time. I wrote a poem, Tom, and I'm slightly digress here, but when I was writing my poetry to help me through my uh, breakdown, I wrote a poem called Glass Heads. And the premise of the poem was that if you've got a physical illness, like I said, if you, if you twist your ankle playing sports or whatever, you'll, you'll get crutches and people won't expect you to run for a bus or you know, climb two flights of stairs. They will understand that with that uh, physical damage that you've done, you, uh, you have some limitations to what you can do. And everyone accepts it. But when you say you've got a mental illness, Everyone just thinks you're a danger, you can't do this, and we don't know, and you're, you're all of that. But actually, what I then wrote about was this physical part. But if we all had glass heads, we could all look at the part of our mind or our brain or whatever bit there is and go, maybe well, I see that I see that you're struggling a wee bit, or I see that, and I know that what you need is a bit of help and support, and we can get you through it just like you would if you, you know, banished your ankle, you know, your, your wrist or your ankle, and it would be exactly the same thing. Because it is just exactly the same thing. Yeah. There's no difference between, in my mind, between physical ill health and mental ill health. It's just that the stigma around mental ill health is far worse than physical ill health. In yeah. my own private view, that's my own personal view. Yeah, no, and I think that's, you know, it's a view most people, if not everyone, would uh, would completely agree with. Yeah. So if, I want to, um, I'm, I've got half an hour on the clock because both of us have actually got to go and do the school run. So <laughs> so I'm conscious of your time. But I really want to, um, I really want to have a bit of chat about the work that you're doing now, Michael, because, um, yeah, I think it's awesome. And I also think that 
Um, it's really common for people who have been through stuff when they get out the other side to want to hold space for others in um, some way. It's certainly something that I'm kind of experiencing myself at the, at the moment. Um, and so once you started getting um, getting well and recovery starting to go well, was that when you started to think about like, how can I do something with this experience? It was, it's, it was kind of strange for me. People talk about when you go through traumatic events, you have this uh, epiphany moment, you know, because perhaps you realise your mortality and you realise that you really want to go in a different direction. None of that happened for me because I was all just concerned about bury it, bury it, bury it. So in 2017, my breakdown began. 2018 continued. And then in May 2018, the day I was meant to end my life, in an attempt to deal with it, I wrote two poems. Okay. And that was to be the first two poems in a book that I was to continue writing that that kind of May through to September. So the book of poems got published on the fifth anniversary of the Clutter Disaster, which is the 29th of, 29th of November 2018. And that was done in conjunction with a charity in Scotland called Stigma Free Lanarkshire. So it's free to download and, well, I mean, it's free to anyone. Uh, and that was really my agreement that I'll give you all the poems, the, the rights to it all, but it has to be free for anyone who wants it because, you know, nobody should make money out of that. Um, so anyway, during that interim period, I was asked more and more to do a lot of professional speaking about my experiences in the corporate world of turning up for work and pretending and coming through these dramatic events. So I was doing it, but I was still employed by my employer at that point in time, but our relationship had completely broken down. So, you know, I wasn't working on the premises, let's just put it like that. Um, and um, so I kind of thought, okay, I'll go and do it. And I remember the night before the first talk I ever done, my wife said to me, what are you going to say? And I no idea. I'll just see when I get there. But no one knows my life like I do, so I'll just do it like that. Um, and, but I've been kind of used to doing speaking in my profession, you know. So I went and I done my talk, and then I got invited to do more talks and more talks and more talks. Um, and then my poetry book was to be was released in November, and I'd been invited to do a kind of talk at the launch of the book of the poetry book. Now, I'm paraphrasing here because this really isn't what the chap said, but it's what I heard, and they are two different things. Um, there was a psychologist who was on before me, and he basically, I heard him basically say, which is different from what he said, that people think there's a magic bullet with mental health. You just have to wait your six months to get seen uh, by the NHS, and that'll be it. Now, he didn't say that, right? And even if he did, he'd say it far more eloquently than I did. But that's, that's what I heard. And what I then thought was, those five or six months that I waited nearly ended my life. I can't be the only person that feels that way during those five or six months. So if I can be the only person, maybe I can help others then. And Tom was the back of my fag packet, as they say. It was a, I, before I went on stage, I scribbled down the name of a company, came to my mind, loved the experience, trauma support, let's, let's talk, let's support, let's, you know, let's as a doing word like that. Here's what the aims will be. And it was scribbled down and I went on stage and done my talk. And after it, I came back and I had no experience of being self-employed or running my own business. I've been salaried for 30 years, 33 years. But I went to Business Gateway, which is an organization up here that run free courses to learn how to do business. Um, I'd done that and I set my business up uh, in April 19 with the fundamental aspect of, I wanted to change the culture around mental health in the workplace both from an employer's perspective, but also from an employee's perspective, being someone who was senior in employment uh, and had the, 
I could have had the power and, and space to change policies and make things different. I just couldn't do it. Uh, but also being an employee that turned up every day and couldn't talk about it. Um, and that's what that's what I've done. Uh, it's kind of went from strength to strength. Um, I do a lot of professional talks around that. We do a lot of mental health training. We do a lot of one-to-one -one support. It's a whole load of stuff. But the premise of it all is lived experience. And as you rightly touched on there, Tom, you know, I think more and more people, when they hear someone who has a story of getting through traumatic events or, or, or whatever it may be, can take inspiration from that and hope uh, and and move on in their life with that. Even just to recall and think, I met a guy who'd done that. And if maybe he did that, then it is possible and I can do it. I might do it differently, but I can still do it. You know, there's different ways to run a hundred meter race, you know? So that for me was really just the, the, the aim and the emphasis of it. It's not, it wasn't to be sanctimonious in any way. It was just that if I can help people who were struggling like me, just by even saying, look, I struggled, I still struggle, but I'm in a better place. Um, you know, I've done that. And then I released a book last year called Don't Believe Your Brain. And that's really just about don't believe your brain because it's not your power, as I said. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of amazed by it all, Tom. I, I still see myself as, in all essence, as that five-year-old five wee boy in the Gorbos, you know, 40, 47 years ago. I don't see myself as anything different. I still have my struggles like anyone else. I'm humbled that people, you know, uh, people may ask for help or read my book or think that I might be the person to help them. So I'm kind of humbled by it all. Uh, I don't see myself as any different uh, as that boy all those years ago. And, and I think that's the way I'm always going to be, you know. Yeah. And it probably, the, you know, one of the reasons people find you so relatable is because you see yourself like that, you know, because people see themselves in, you know, I would never would have spoke about my mental health if I hadn't heard someone else do it. And when I did speak, I didn't want people to solve my problems necessarily. I didn't want advice. I didn't want to get told to go for a run or anything like that. I just wanted someone to say, I know what you're on about and it's shit in it. <laughs> you know, that's sometimes that's just enough, right? That's it. I mean, I, I kind of use the phrase, you know, um, if you want to, if you want to know the road ahead, ask someone who's been on it. You know, it's kind of like, and I just kind of say, like, you know, I, I, I said it earlier on. I think that all of us who've been through something, right? You know, whether it's a, whatever it is, but struggling with mental health, we can talk the language of trauma, right? And we can help other people who are just learning that language. And I mean that in a nicest way. Who, particularly during um, the lockdowns and all that sort of stuff, because. I always think that when the lockdown began, I knew that I had coping mechanisms because of what I'd been through. So I knew that my music was relevant to me. I had a garage at that point, so I could go and lift, a, you know, do a wee bit of workout in the garage. Those things worked for me. But there, there undoubtedly were people that for the very first time began to struggle with their mental health and had no access to services. And who were probably sitting thinking, what's going on? What's going on in my mind? I don't, you know, for, like, like us all when we first got it. Um, what do you think? where's this voice coming from? And oh, somebody's telling me I'm worthless. And um, So for those people in that first instance who don't have access to services, what alternatives are there? Um, and for me, what I always kind of say is, look, you know, without, uh, I think that sometimes we always think that the NHS is the answer. And I'm not blaming the NHS for that. We're all just brought up to think the NHS is the all and end all. But actually, there are other ways that help can be given. And that's through, you know, podcast people like you and I talking about stuff in different support groups where it's actually on a really human level um, and when I do a, a lot of support for employers and employees 
And now we say, look, you know, what our organization does is the bottom rung on anyone's ladder. And if all we ever do is just simply have a conversation that, as you said, it says, it's shit, isn't it? It's shit. And see how you feel. I know how it feels. And I know exactly what you're going through. And I'm not saying it because I've got some academic certificate that says because I am the least academic person in the world. It's because I know what it's like to wake up in the morning and think, I don't want to be here. And I don't think I can make it till 11 o'clock in the morning, never mind five o'clock and make the dinner for my family. So, and I think, as you said, actually just having people who are willing to be that honest and be open about their own faults and their own mistakes that have made um, can really help people because we always just think that if we're failures, everyone else is successful and we're the only failure in the world, apart from it. But the one thing I generally say to Tom is that your brain tells you you're the only person struggling, right? And nobody will relate to you. But if you look at it, and I know you'll know the statistics, that one in four people at any point in time can be struggling with their mental health, right? So if you take the UK as a 60 million population, I don't really know what it is, but it's an easy arithmetical number for me. So for 60 million and one in four of us at any given time are struggling, that means that right now, this moment in time, potentially 15 million of us are struggling with our mental health. So the last thing we are is alone. We should never think we're alone. There is, there's millions of people like you and I there might just be less of us willing to speak about it, but there are more of us than ever before. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a fantastic, um, fantastic way to look at it, mate. And a really lovely point to, uh, to end our conversation, but thank you so much for your time today, Michael. I've really enjoyed that. It was an absolute pleasure. You're more than welcome, Tom. Thank you very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you, mate. Please like and subscribe. The space time.